0: We're so glad you've joined us and welcome back to your week with St. Luke's as we f- begin to finish our stories together um, with understanding what it means to love God through worship. Today, Dr. Eric Moore will look at what happened when Peter is on his way into the synagogue and begins to heal someone and we'll understand what it means to love God through our worship, no matter what our circumstances are.
1: Hello friends, it is good to be with you yet again. My name is Eric Moore and I'm a PhD in New Testament. I work at Candler School of Theology, which is part of the larger academic institution of Emory University. Just to recap, we've been looking these last few weeks at the Book of Acts and Luke's picture of the origin of the Christian community. We began by looking at what it means for the apostles to be witnesses to the risen Lord. Two weeks ago we looked at Peter's speech in Acts 2 and the picture given there of what it means to learn the story of God's salvation. And last week we looked at the end of chapter 2, following Peter's speech, at the picture of community life. What does it mean to live together as a body of believers in the resurrected Jesus Christ? and that transitions very nicely to the beginning of Acts 3 where we see an extended portrait of love. So we are considering as an implication of the passage today what it means to love together as followers of Jesus Christ and in community. So let's dive right in. We first want to ask how Acts 3 fits into the context of Luke's wider narrative. To begin with, we should say that it continues the story of the earliest Christian community in Jerusalem. We saw in Acts 1 through 2 how that community was planted, both through Pentecost and through Peter's preaching. And the next few chapters, beginning here in chapters 3 and extending to Acts chapter 7, elaborate on the reinforcement of that community. In these chapters, we see a repeated pattern indicating the means by which the apostles' witness accomplished the divine purposes among here, the Jews. Parts of this pattern are familiar from Acts 1 through 2. The apostles engage in teaching and miracle-working, producing wonderment and new believers. Then there is also this new theme of opposition. Jealous at the people's response to the new word, the religious leaders seek to prosecute imprison, and even in the case of Stephen, stone the new adversaries. But each time, except in the case of Stephen again in chapter 7, divine intervention results in rescue for these public witnesses. Now, this pattern of witness, opposition, and rescue is interspersed with summaries of community life, such as we saw in Acts chapter 2 and such as we will see in Acts 4, 23 through 32. Now, this latter summary, Acts chapter 4, like Acts 2, again shows the unity of the community. And there are a couple of things to remark about this passage firstly. To begin with, here, as in the preceding two chapters, the believers interpret their own experiences in light of Scripture. In this case, the characters in the narrative see Psalm 2's reference to Gentiles, kings, and rulers arrayed against the Messiah. They see that as reflected also in their own experience of opposition to Jesus from the likes of Herod and Pilate, responsible for Jesus' condemnation, and the people more broadly who give Jesus up. Second. This summary in Acts chapter 4 echoes earlier passages, specifically the Pentecost passage in Acts 2. In response to a prayer for boldness, the room that the followers are in start to shake in a manner that is suggestive of a theophany or an expression of the divine. Now recall those signs preceding the Holy Spirit's outpouring in Acts 2, and you'll see what I mean by comparisons here. And as further evidence of this parallel, the believers here in Acts chapter four are filled with the Holy Spirit, enabling them to speak the word of God with boldness as they requested. This summary, therefore, at the end of Acts chapter four, shows the successful outcome of the preceding witness of the apostles to which we will turn now. So the passage we are discussing in this lecture is Acts three, and this relates to the healing of the lame man, Acts three, one through 10. Notably, Luke pairs this miracle with another speech by Peter in Acts 3:11 through 26, which unpacks its significance. Now, this is a nice parallel to Acts chapter 2, where we saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and a reaction to it. And then we saw Peter give a speech there explaining its significance. Now, by now, we are familiar with this teaching miracle framework of the apostles and their master, Jesus. Remember, this is what Luke is trying to do in establishing uh, these links between the apostles and how they carry out their ministry and that of Jesus, these words and deeds. And Peter's healing of the lame man in this passage, Acts 3, 1-10, is fundamentally one of love but we are going to examine the different elements of this story so as to better understand the whole of it in light of Luke's theological program. Thus, we must first begin by noting that the specific event in Acts 3 has parallels to Jesus's own healing of a paralytic in Luke chapter 5, 17 through 26, as well as Paul's healing of the lame man in Lystra, further along in Acts, Acts 14, 8 through 11. This suggests that healing, or restoration, as we'll come to see, plays an important role in advancing the kingdom of God in Luke, Acts. There are three primary characters in this story Peter, along with John, the layman, and the people. Let's consider how each are portrayed. Peter and John are the apostolic protagonists here. As we've already seen from Acts 1 through 2, Peter is a major actor in Luke's narrative. This is much less the case with John, he is given little attention, and even here does not have a major speaking role. But no matter, Luke's overarching purpose is to illustrate, often using singular individuals such as Peter, how the apostles as a whole carried out their responsibilities as witnesses to the resurrected Christ. A key feature of the miracle performed here by the apostles is that it takes place in proximity to the temple. Luke is even more specific, in fact. It happened while, quote, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon, end quote, Acts 3.1. This recalls the picture of community life given in last week's lecture concerning Acts 2.42-47. In verse 46 of that passage, we are told how the early Christians, quote, day by day spent much time in the temple. In both instances, Luke is demonstrating the proper piety of these believers. I will come back to the description of the apostles, but let me say something first about the description of the lame man. Luke describes the lame man as an essentially passive character to begin with. His disability is such that he has to be carried to his destination. See again the resemblance to the man healed by Jesus in Luke 5. And this destination is the temple where the man is forced to beg of others, another passive-type activity. There is potentially a moral dimension to this description. It was not uncommon in the ancient world to see outward disability portrayed as a reflection of an inward condition. So we might imagine that this man's lameness was seen by many as a testimony to his inherent or innate qualities as a person. He was also socially isolated in some respects. Yes, he is carried by people to his destination, not specified as friends, though. But, more important, he is for one reason or another incapable of entering the temple. This cuts him off from a primary form of participation that defines the people of God in this context. His isolation in this regard was social as well as religious. The most this lame man can do is plead for alms from those who do enter the temple. Acts 3 2. Last, the man's passivity and isolation was long-standing. Luke leaves no doubt of this with his opening remark that the man was quote lame from birth. 3, 2. This note heightens the severity of the man's condition in order to, correspondingly, magnify the miracle of his eventual healing. Turning back now to the Apostles, let's consider their approach to the lame man. We observe right away that they create a sense of expectation with their attention. Luke relates that, quote, Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, look at us, Acts 3, 4. Later in Acts, it is Paul who is associated with this intense look, Acts 13, 9, 14, 9. Appropriately, on one of these occasions, the latter one, Paul too is on the verge of healing a lame man. So in essence, this look prepares for a divine act through Jesus' witnesses, Peter and then later Paul. But we also see that the act circumvents expectations. The lame man anticipated alms, quote, he fixed his attention on them expecting to receive something from them, in quote, Acts 3:6. And of course, he will end up receiving something far greater. It is interesting that before Peter facilitates this man's healing, he reports that I have no silver or gold. This is probably Luke's way of reinforcing the apostles' pure motives i.e., they didn't operate with a purse filled from proceeds from their teaching and miracle working ministry. They weren't hucksters, in other words. In place of alms, Peter gives something far better, healing. Now Luke's way of relating this miracle is striking because it involves both proclamation and touch. Peter begins by commanding the layman, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk, 3.6. And the naming here is efficacious the lame man gains the ability to walk. Peter, in fact, begins his speech in the subsequent verses 11 through 26 by insisting that Jesus' name and not his own power is responsible for this miracle, Acts 3.12 and 3.16. Incidentally, as in the Acts 2 speech we looked at two weeks ago, Peter uses this speech explaining a miraculous event, there the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, here the healing of the lame man, to demonstrate how God's act on behalf of Jesus represented a continuation of his salvation work through the ancestors. In this case, Samuel, Moses, and Abraham. What becomes clear to the reader through this speech is that the healing of the lame man symbolizes the more enduring promises of salvation through Jesus Christ to Israel and then to the nations. In this proclamation-rich account, though, it is critical that we see the physical mechanism of healing as well. Note that Peter took the lame man by the hand and raised him up, 3.7. This detail anticipates the later remark in chapter 5 about the potential power of even Peter's shadow to heal. Luke reveals the power of God working through Jesus' representatives. At any rate, the physical touch here in Acts 3 complements the verbal naming of Jesus. Both act on the attention that is signaled by the Apostle's intent look, resulting in the lame man's healing. The touch also anticipates a reversal of the lame man's social isolation. It intimates acceptance despite societal prejudice. This social reversal becomes clear as we return to the lame man to look at his healing. Luke gives equal attention to the physical dimensions of the lame man's healing. But whereas up to now, the man has been a passive recipient of care, beginning at this point, we see him and his body take on a more active role. Luke tells us that immediately, quote, his feet and ankles were made strong, 3-7, quote. In some medical writings of antiquity, weak ankles suggested passivity and impaired character. Read against this cultural script, the lame man's healing points to a robust physical restoration. But this is hardly all. The narrative goes on to describe how the man, jumping up, stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God, 3, eight. Much is happening here. Obviously, the exuberant action of the man once lame is further proof of his healing, but it is also a probable echo of Isaiah 35.6, Quote, then the lame shall leap like a deer, end quote, which speaks of the restoration of Israel. So as in Peter's follow-up speech, there is here an indication that the lame man's healing symbolically has implications for a broader corporate salvation. At the very least, the healing functions as a public witness so others will believe. And let's not miss the broader implications as it pertains to the healed man himself. Luke's remark about him entering the temple with the apostles is very significant in this regard. It is one clue among many that here, healing is not just physical, it is also social. The apostles' touch and proclamation of Jesus has fundamentally reversed the man's isolation. They have helped integrate him into community. Okay, let's consider the last protagonist in the story, the people. As in Acts 2, Luke focuses on the people's response to the miraculous deed. He begins his description with words phrases that signify recognition. Quote, "They see the lame man walking and praising God." in quote Three, 9 They recognized the man as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, 310. And finally, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This positive response builds anticipation for how the people will respond once Peter begins speaking in the following verses. 11 through 26, about this Jesus in whose name the lame man was healed. In fact, most of that speech concerns the past response to Jesus involving his crucifixion. Peter calls upon the audience to repent for their rejection of Jesus. What Peter does, in effect, is explain the symbolism inherent in the healing of the lame man in front of the temple. He offers the people another chance to embrace what God has accomplished through the resurrected Jesus. So that is Acts 3. Now, what might this passage have to teach us about love? First of all, I think we can see here that love is a blessing. This is precisely the point, I think, that Peter makes in his follow-up speech, where he connects the healing of the man born lame to this desire of God to bless people through Jesus Christ. And this blessing is restorative. Second of all, I think it encourages us to look at the expansive ways that this blessing can be enacted. There is, of course, the individual dimension, ministering to people in our midst with concrete, physical, mental, material needs. And there's also the corporate dimension, restoring those folks to connectedness with others around them, working for a sense of equity and a mutual care in our communities, restoring social bonds, in other words. Furthermore, love involves both word and deed. Peter proclaims healing in the name of Jesus Christ, and then he also reaches out helps lift up the man. What are the ways that we can do that in our communities? Unite this clear sense of God's proclamation in Jesus Christ to concrete acts of care for those around us. Finally, this sense of love requires purpose. Recall Peter's intent look He has a sense of attention to those in need around him. Furthermore, he is not just healing for the sake of healing. He is healing with a very concrete sense of what God is wanting to accomplish through Jesus Christ. And then lastly, internally, caring for those around us builds community, our sense of identity, who we are as a people, what is our mission in the world. Externally, it symbolically proclaims God's salvation. That is exactly what we see in this passage. This healing is a form of God's working through the apostles to bring other people into his blessing. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you and to look at this passage together, and more importantly, the opportunity to spend all of this time these last four lectures discussing the origins of the Christian community in acts 1 through 3 and considering what that means for our own calling in life and in ministry i hope to connect with you on another occasion until then i wish all of you the best blessings
0: welcome to your week with saint luke's and our office hours podcast in this episode we are going to be discussing the rhythm of what it means to love god through worship and I'm really excited because this podcast, we are joined by Melissa Cooper, who is our pastor of worship and art ministry, Steve McKinnon, who's our artistic director over worship and arts, and Faith Bowles, a saint Luker. She's also a church council member, one of our contemporary worship leaders, and most recently, our assistant director of Guys and Dolls. So we're going to get started by having you introduce yourselves. Tell us how long you've been at St. Luke's and a little bit about your story as a worshiper in the years.
2: Great. Okay, I'll go first. Um, My name is Faith Bowles. I've been attending St. Luke's since February 2019. And um, I have been a churchgoer my whole life. I was a preacher's kid, um, grew up Southern Baptist and uh, decided uh, quickly um, after my death of my father when I was eight to uh, take a break from church for a little bit for obvious reasons and um, decided to uh, go to a Methodist church, a friend of mine who was like, hey, you should come to this church. Uh, We're a theater church back in Savannah, Georgia, where I'm from. And I started going there and I was like, I really like the core values of, of this whole Methodist church situation. So I started going and I ended up getting baptized Methodist and the rest is history. And now I'm here in Orlando. So there's that.
3: Yeah. I'm Steve McKinnon. Um, I have been on staff here at St. Luke's since 2008. Um, So going on 14 years now, crazy, wild, never would have imagined I would work at a church and become a member of St. Luke's. Um, St. Luke's really helped me rediscover my heart for worship and find a church home and a community. Uh, When I was in high school, I started drifting from the church and kind of just went on Christmas and Easter. And in my young adult life, I stopped going altogether because I didn't think I would be welcomed into church. Um, And yeah, and God brought me back Um, and had a plan for me. So here we are, almost 14 years later.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've been uh, with St. Luke's um, for about three and a half years now, but known St. Luke's for a long time. Um, For me, I'm a multi-generational Methodist, um, goes way back, um, into the 1800s. My family was Methodist and so grew up in a Methodist church, baptized in a Methodist church and worship for my family was, was always an option. It wasn't something where we were there every Sunday. It wasn't something where it was an expectation in that way. Um, so we went when, when we felt like it, we went when it was right for our family and, um, where I really got, um, passionate about worship and, and better understood worship was at camp. Um, it was those, those spaces in camp and retreat experiences where, where you get to usually be a little more creative with worship. You get to, to try some different things, do it in different spaces and places, and um, do worship that, that didn't just necessarily follow the same pattern every time, but was very contextual in, in what the, the retreat or the camp or the message was about. And so that was where my love of worship and appreciation for worship really was nurtured.
0: So like Melissa, I'm a lifelong generational Methodist. Um, And it's interesting because worship for me was something we had to do. It Mm -hmm. was every Sunday. It was every special worship service. We went to a very large church. My parents were the paid soloists. And so we Mm -hmm. were there at choir rehearsal. We were there at every special service. We were there at worship on Christmas Day, as well as all the Christmas Eve services. And so for me, worship was a rhythm and a practice that just was a part of my life. I was baptized when I was two weeks old, and that's when my worshiping started. Mm-hmm. And so I want to say it was obligation, but it wasn't. It was it was a service. My parents taught worship was a service. So mm-hmm. could you define what worship has meant to you in your life, um, but means to you now? Define the word worship.
2: You mean to go? I okay, I'll go. Um, I think for me, what worship means more than anything is community. Um, it's something that's really important to me. Um, just being an actor, traveling around was part of my career. I've been in the, the business for 20 years. So I've lived everywhere, literally, even on cruise ships. Uh, so, so for me, worship means um, just coming together as a community and just worshiping the Lord and what he has done for us and and just thanking him for our blessings every single day and being grateful for that Um, and worshiping him even through not a church sometimes, because as we know with the pandemic, we could not come to church physically. Um, So worshiping uh, God even through a sunset or a song on the radio um, or a person texting and saying, hey, how's your day or um, a phone call or things of that nature. So for me, it's all about community and just communicating with each other.
3: Uh, To scaffold on top of what Faith just said. I think for me, um, it starts with the connection. I think it is um, not necessarily just in the moment of what we define as corporate worship, but worship is a time to connect with God and to reflect, to study the word of God, um, to challenge yourself, and then also how we are called to act upon that word out in the world. But it's that moment, however we define that, wherever we define it, when we can kind of reflect and respond um, to the word of God and then take it out. And it's that call Mm -hmm. and it's that experience that gives us, you know, in that moment Mm -hmm. to go do so.
0: Steve, you've always talked about worship is up and out. Mm -hmm. You know, it's this relationship, yeah, where we focus on God. You connect to God first, I think.
3: Yeah, so I I do believe it is about um, connecting to God and studying and and being there, whether you're leading worship, if you're in the room, if you're at a sunset. Mm -hmm. um, It is about... I think making sure or just having the experience of connecting up and then however that comes out of your body through song, um, through liturgy, through reading, through, through response, and then through a relationship, how we take it out, you know, and worship is that act that I think that experience that then sends us forward to live that out.
4: I think it's interesting because I think y'all are talking about the the sort of crux of what we want worship to be a lot of times, of that, that personal and communal experience, that thing that you're really bought into and you're into. One of the things that I have found in in studying all of this in seminary and, and in practicing over time too. One of the pieces of worship that sometimes we we get like weird talking about, but it's the ritualistic elements of it. It's it's doing something again and again. And mm-hmm. whether it's just simply coming together with the same group of people or or seeing the same thing or whatever it might be, or singing the same words, or speaking words, there's there's also something important about worship as a regular practice um, because it's a thing that we then keep doing even if our heart isn't fully into it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, because you come expecting that experience of God. you come wanting that and you come hoping for that. And so that's where some of those those rituals come into it too, is that you can show up and you can participate even if you're not totally there. And I think that's something about the communal piece that you're talking about faith too is that if I show up, I'm participating in this, but other people are, it's it I may not be fully there, but someone in the room is and it's like that carrying each other's, burdens in that way. It's carrying each other's life in in a weird way. And um, so there's, there's the, there's the really in it part of worship. And then there's the doing it because maybe you're not there right now too, that, that it gives us both of those things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because that's what we're trying to do with these
0: four words. These learn, live, love, and lead is that when we do this rhythm, however, in whatever form we are, when we learn the story, God's story, Christ's story, our story, and then we live it in community and learn it even better, mm-hmm. then we take that story and we love God in worship and through worship, however it may be. So what does it mean for you to love God through the, the rhythm, the discipline mm-hmm. of worship? How does it help you? How does worship help you love God and love God's story more?
4: I think when I go back to the story that I told of what, what my family's rhythm was growing up, there wasn't a rhythm Um, and so I I think there is something to simply showing up, um, that, that I'm, I'm going to show up. I'm going to be there, whether it's online, whether it's in person, whether it's with the sunset, whatever it might be, I'm going to show up expecting that encounter. I'm going to show up expecting and bringing myself to it. Um, so I think there is something about that, that discipline going back Mm -hmm. to that concept of being a disciple and a learner. There's, there's an element of just simply disciplining yourself to simply show up, um, that, that, begins to to lean into some of what you're talking about, I
2: think, Jen. Mm-hmm. To piggyback off of that, uh, as a preacher's kid, you don't really have a choice but to go to church because that's right. what you do. Amen. And um, <laughs> so as a kid, it was very annoying to me to have to get up at 6am exactly. to go to church. It's like why, I just, I'm like, every day of school, I have to get up at six to go catch the bus, so why am I doing this on Sunday? But then as I've got older, and like really understanding the word and really understanding why I was actually in church, it was like, oh, I actually want to be here. And the times that I didn't go and the years that we didn't go because of our grief and things of that nature, I felt like I, something was missing. It was like something was weird. Um, so now it's like when I don't go, I'm like, oh, I really wanted to go today or, you know, and things like that. Or I'll hear a certain song on the radio and I'm like, oh, I love singing that song in church or singing the song with a certain person, you know, and things like that. So then it just becomes a habit. And then all of a sudden it's like thinking about that Bible verse and then thinking about that time that God did this for me and then it becomes a cycle. You know, so then it becomes second nature to you. Right. Um, so, yeah.
0: I have found that the, the, the things I learned in worship through osmosis almost, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. by just being there, whether it was the songs, the hymns, the, the liturgy, mm-hmm. the scripture. I mean, you don't realize how much your body, not just your mind and heart, but your body, yes. like, takes in. And it was in my crisis moments that that I would be able to go to those memories. And I was able, even when I was angry at God or angry at the world, I could love God through that muscle memory. Yeah. And, and it, it connected me, like you said, to God and to healing in ways that I would have never imagined. Like I remember from, you know, a little kid um, songs that I had sung that I've never sung in any other church, but the muscle memory in the midst of pain and crisis came back to me. And, and it made me love God when I was ready to give up.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point because if you think about what happened in the last year and a half in worship, in the ritual of worship as we knew it, um, the act of and how we participated in, and um, engaged in that changed for all of us. It stopped in um, the physical way that the ritual, we were used to physically. And um, through through the pandemic, we had to reinvent worship and find a new way and a new voice, and a new approach, and um, a new lens to hear and to experience through our computers. And I think it really reset for a lot of us those rituals, how to experience them, and also how to connect to our community Mm -hmm. um, through a different way. And to me, that was like a new um, step a, a deeper level into what worship meant and the impact and the power of needing our community, connecting with those people in a different way, and, and just how human connection and relationship, how powerful that is um, through God and through God's word, and, and why it is so important. And to experience that through the last year and a half was transformative, I think, to I experience worship that way. It was crazy.
4: It was. Well, and Faith, you can probably speak to this better than any of us, but I, I heard that from so many people in those first that first month or so, this this hour on Sunday is the thing that's keeping me connected to, to my community, to people like there's something important about this. And and in the time we talked about oh how great technology is and how wonderful it is that we have these opportunities. But but I think you're talking about like we're, we're getting at the for, to quote Matt Redman, the heart of worship. Right. right. That it, mm-hmm. it really is that thing that 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 even when we have to do it differently, there's something about that being the thing that kept us together. Yeah. The
3: ritual and, and even the act of communion. Everything looked different. And we were using Pop-Tarts and we were using Ritz crackers. Ritz crackers. Like everything was turned upside down. And We were all challenged in our own right. rituals and what we thought was, you know, one way. And to, to experience that and engage it a different way. And I think a lot of us learned and, and our faith deepened and, and understood yeah. things through I, a new yes. lens. It
0: was fascinating. Because in essence, it's the same story it's the same God and, and we got to see a different facet yeah. that we had never seen before. Yeah. Faith, you were gone. Yeah. Um, for part of that. So what was it, what did it mean to you to worship with us?
2: Yeah. I went time? home, uh, right after the layoffs happened at Disney, I went home for a couple months just to separate myself for some stuff, but you know, it was hard. It was hard being away physically from people. But I think what kind of kept me connected for sure was the we, the praise team. We had our weekly Zoom calls, um, which was great. It was like a therapy session in an hour. It was awesome. Sometimes three. Sometimes three hours. It's fine. It's all good. Um, but we needed it. So it was great. And then just being home and watching, um, I actually felt it sounds weird because I had only been with the church for a year at that point. I joined in 2019 shutdown happened in March of 2020. So I was still getting to know people. Um, I, just, I was just trying to figure out my way in the church and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to be connected. And so right when the shutdown happened, I was like, well, this is going to be great. So I went home and I actually felt weirdly more connected um, with, um, with the praise team more when I was home. Um, I actually had better relationships with them. People were like, oh, how are you doing? How's Savannah? How's your parents? You know, and I felt more of a connection with people um, because it forced me to have conversations and I, you know, one-on-one that I would be like, okay, guys, I have to go to work now. Great worship service. Bye. It was more intense conversations
3: about just life, but also God too. So, And yeah. I think we craved worship on Sundays at that point because it was something we could regularly participate in and... In in that sense, you know, and and come together and we were all like Sundays, see each other in the chat, right? And get to connect with the community and and share in our love for God um, and through our church, right? Mm -hmm. And there was so much power
4: in that. I think it made us ask more questions. Those of us who were crafting worship, we had to ask different questions too. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, what you're sharing, Steve, too, I think we all went through of having to think more deeply about how we are crafting worship. Um, I think we are way more intentional than I can at least speak for the three and a half years I've been here than ever before since that time because we had to think not just about how are we going to do the thing that we do every week, but how are we going to do this in a new medium so you had to get below it to go, what are we actually trying to do? What really does it mean to craft worship? And what is it that we're, we're trying to, to create? What experience are we trying to create rather than just going to to the things that we've always done?
3: Yeah, it made us look at the function of everything we were – strategically planning and question everything. Why do we do this? And made us all learn and study the act of worship, the rituals of worship and know what their function is, mm-hmm. um, you know, or how to engage what this, this moment in worship right. is for, right? right? And, and so I think it, it's, it's for some of us who didn't necessarily s- study that and go to college for it, it was even at that next level of um, training through that and being challenged from our leadership to really understand Mm -hmm. why we were putting things where and the order and the movement Mm -hmm. of worship and you know is this a call to action is this a reflection is this a lamentation like what is it so Mm
0: -hmm. yeah so it's interesting because you know the the arc of worship is to reorient ourselves and to put god first again in our life Mm -hmm. um and 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 how we do that that's the importance of the discipline is because we usually live our our lives with us first and worship makes God the audience. So God becomes first again. So let me ask this idea. We, we Learn is supposed to be the place where if you're a musician or if you're in theater, it's where you learn your skills. It's where you learn your lines. It's where you do the individual work to learn the story you're telling, to learn your skills and drills as we say on an instrument. Um, live when we live together and live that story in community is when you kind of like get with the people in that particular scene and you rehearse that part of the story or you get with your, the, the flute players or the clarinet players and you practice the, that part together. But we say worship is the rehearsal of all of us. It's kind of like that final dress rehearsal where everybody comes and the full story is told. Why is worship as rehearsal important for the church? in order for the church to go out and live the story and lead the story. What do you think about that metaphor of worship as rehearsal? What does it mean to you?
2: I feel like, you know, when you're a kid in Easter and Eastern, you have like that one verse that you're supposed to recite on Sunday, like, okay, I'm going to go up there and do my one little line mm-hmm. and I'm going to go sit down, my little Easter dress. But I feel like it's kind of like that with theater too. Like you get your script, you get your Bible, you go home, you read your, you read your, your lines, you might read your verse for the week. You study it. You study your verse for the week, and it all of a sudden it becomes like, "Oh, I memorized this. Okay, now I get to live this. Okay, now I go to rehearsal. You go to worship. Mm-hmm. You talk about it with your cast or your director. You talk about it with your pastor.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You talk about it with your community at your church, and then you go out and you live it. You go out and you perform the show.
0: Right. Yes.
2: It's all the same.
0: Yes, it is. It's you know. telling the story. Mm-hmm. And worship is a place where we go, oh, wait, the story is not just my story. Mm-hmm. It's like our story. It's a bigger story. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. great.
3: And rehearsals, too, are a lot of times where you you learn the foundation from your Bible, from your script. But then you also learn the why. You learn the intentions behind it. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you, you deepen that knowledge to understand and have, you know, you know why you're saying, you know, in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a show, you know what is driving your character. So. And through worship, we know what this is called to do here, what we were called to do, or how to respond and become second nature, but also to understand it deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that rehearsal, so we can go live it out into the world. I love that metaphor universal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rehearsal.
4: Well, and one of the phrases that we, we, a lot of times we'll hear people say is something about whether I got something out of worship or not. And and it's one I'm always torn on because we do want people to walk away having received something in worship, but the act of worship is actually not about receiving at all. It's actually entirely about giving. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. Nothing about worship is about us. And it is about us in that it is our chance. It's that It's that one more time before I go and try this in the world. And especially in our pattern that we're, we're now going with this learn and live and love. It's, it's the chance to go, okay, what I learned, how I talked about it with my life together group or my small group or my family or uh, my friends or, or, or the, the safe space, if that makes sense. It's, it's that last safe, but a little less safe space to, to try on something. To go, okay, I'm going to say these words here. I'm going to sing this song here. I'm going to recite this liturgy here. I'm going to listen to a message and be sure I've really, really got it down. So that when I go and and encounter a moment in my everyday life that in no way is framed theologically for me, that I am now prepared to frame that moment theologically, that interaction, that, that individual, that conflict, that I am now more prepared to live into The thing that I have learned and and discussed. And and so it's why why liturgy spoken liturgy matters is is we want to put the words into people's mouths, into our mouths and get a chance to say them um, before we have to then figure it out on our own.
0: (laughs) Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, If we've done our worship well, if we've created an arc, as we talk around here, the arc of worship from beginning to end, from the, the, the gathering song to the prelude to every movement of liturgy and song and spoken word is punctuation for the whole week. Mm-hmm. So that I know the script. I know God's script and my script and my role in it, that God and Christ invites me onto the stage. And I get to then begin, as Faith said, to tell the story, to enact, to live, to lead the story mm-hmm. that Christ invited me to um, in the world.
4: And it makes a difference. Well, and it's your last time with the script because after that it's
0: improv. Yep. Amen. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Because your life, leading it like Jesus, is just you and the greatest improv actor of God. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like we're going to go do this together and it's going to be yes and and okay. do you know it? Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Anything else you want to say about worship before we end? No, I think we said it all. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for joining us um, on our Office Hours podcast. We hope that you'll come and be a part of worship and you'll find ways to worship in your everyday life um, and that we'll love God together through worship, not only corporately but individually, and so that we can be people who lead our lives like Jesus.